Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. Our guest this month is Solomon Weisbard. Sol is a lighting designer who is living the dream and working in beautiful, exotic Italy. He started his career in Ithaca, New York, and is now based out of Brooklyn. His list of credits is hugely impressive, and we took advantage of the eight-hour time difference to grab a few words with him about his career and his latest projects, one of which is Don't Get Jealous, Lighting a Verdi Opera, and another is a production of Oedipus the King at an outdoor amphitheater in Pompeii. You had a quote from uh, an old Facebook post that says, 12 years ago, I started my design career with a vague dream of eventually collaborating on some really big experimental European productions. Tonight we open and a huge milestone is reached, Oedipus, Tyrannos of Sophocles at the Teatro Grande de Pompeii, Italia. Okay, now your, ton of, your uh, Facebook feed has a ton of photos in this production and it looks massive, right? I, how do you approach or how do you light something so diverse, so large, and yet so steeped in history? Hmm. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think so. I think so much. So much of it is doing the same thing that we do for any production, which is tuning in really carefully to what that show wants. You know, and every show and every script has its own history, has its has its own baggage that it brings with it, has its own context. And for every process, no matter how big or how small, you're trying to receive that information, synthesize it, and then figure out how to translate it into a design. Um, so that's the kind of short answer. I mean, for Oedipus, there was a lot of... Um, there's a lot of context there. You know, there's obviously a lot of history, not only with that piece, but um, also this site, um, you know, performing on the ruins of Pompeii means a lot for a lot of people right. and how to create how to create a, a design and a, and a world that brings those things together. Does it, does um, it being know. an outdoor venue make a difference? Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, there were moments where uh, uh, the the moon would be rising, you know, as we began rehearsal, and it would cast, it would really cast a palpable light onto the stage, and we tried to do blackouts, and we'd be like, what is this shape on the floor? And <laughs> realizing it was the moonlight, you know. And then, of course, we, we, we started to love it, and then the next night, it was a little late for its entrance and the next night even more. And then finally for the performance, it never showed up. Um, so those are, yeah, I mean, that's well, one how example. How unreliable is that? <laughs> I know, really. I mean, I imagine that some people chart out when it arrives, but, um, you know, we left it up to chance. Cool. There's not uh, a whole lot that you can leave up to chance with a, with a, you know, a, a scheduled rigorous set list of cues that you need to make for a performance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and being outdoors does, uh, does become a little trickier in that way for our final performance there. We had a giant rainstorm arrive, like right as the house was opening. Um, so we had to cover all of the lights. We had to cover the props, um, do kind of do our whole shut. We, we shut down the lighting board, shut down the sound console and then the storm passed, and we were able to perform. I think this show started about twenty minutes late, but um, you know we were we were able to do it anyway. 
but yeah, there's all, all kinds of challenges certainly with um, working outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. All right, so, how did you? Uh, first of all, how did you get this gig in in Pompeii of, of all places? Well, um, in a sense, all things lead back to Jennifer Tipton. Um, she was my mentor in grad school, and um, if you don't know who she is, she's a, a really fantastic uh, lighting designer who uh, has been doing it for many, many years. She's been teaching at Yale. Um, I think since the seventies, um, uh, she, she's part of a really strong lineage of, um, fantastic lighting designers. Um, and she really did a lot to transform the, um, the way it's done. So, uh, she, she is a mutual friend or a mutual colleague of this fellow named John Torres, who's also a fantastic lighting designer, and he's worked with uh, Robert Wilson quite a bit, um, and uh, he connected me to it. And um, and actually, the first the first uh, project I've been working on with Bob is the one I'm doing now, um, Le Trouvert, uh, which is uh, Il Trovatore in um, French. Um, and so we started that about a year ago um, in preparations for the Verdi Festival that's happening now in Parma. And then, as part of that, we Bob Bob and I got to know each other, and and um, he offered me this opportunity to work on Oedipus. Nice, that's a, yeah. definitely an opportunity to jump at. From from all the pictures that I've seen, folks, you can check out Saul Weisbar's FB feed for the uh, for dozens of pictures. They they look ridiculously way cool. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, serious. It's. So what kind of setup do you have for something like that? I mean, I, I, you don't need to list every park hand, but I mean, for an outdoor setup with obviously there's a few specials in there and, and you know, moods and shadings, um, how much equipment are we talking about? Yeah, so um, working with Bob is, a, is really different than pretty much anything else I've done. Um, the, the way he works is with extreme specificity um so uh and it's all about getting light where you want it and not where you don't so um uh we have um and then it also requires really intense uh brightness on people's bodies and and primarily their faces mm -hmm. so through that basically the approach is we use the the fanciest moving lights we can get, which have the, the most intensity um, and the most specificity. So we can, from 35 meters away, you know, from 100 feet away, we can uh, light someone's hand or light, you know, light, light the top of someone's head or, um, you know, a, a, a prop that they're holding. Right. Um, so, so we're able to kind of shape, shape uh, the the composition with extreme specificity. So I think on that show we had about 35 moving lights. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, another trademark of Bob's work is the background. And usually that's a cyclorama. Um, but in this case, we had the ruins of Pompeii. So um, we had some very bright, um, uh, high-end uh, psych lights, LED psych lights that lived uh, behind the actors that lit the lit the background, in addition to using some moving lights to light it. Yeah. Cool. So those were the main tools 
um, for that show. And then there were a few other bells and whistles. But basically, with, with that kind of setup, we're able to get the specificity and the flexibility that, that Bob needs. Nice. Is everything digital these uh, days? Or LED? Yeah. Um, uh, more and more. I mean, Bob, you know, Bob started his work uh, in the 60s when nothing was. So there's certain parts of the light plot that he's used to that um, uh, is often done with more conventional lighting. But these days, um, it just makes sense in a lot of ways. If you're renting the show, a lot of the rental shops only have the newer equipment, which tends to be uh, LED or, or, you know, more in the kind of digital world. And the big thing is the control of it. You know, we use um, lighting consoles that have very advanced functions where you can control each attribute of the light separately and you can create really specific um, movement and, and fades. You know, I'm I'm old school. I remember light shows way back in the day. You know, people would say, "Oh, you got to go see Genesis, or you got to go see Pink Floyd because they have the best light show ever." And for those days, yeah, they did. Um, but those were the you know the, the old style stuff. Nowadays, I'm seeing digital LEDs that rotate, that change, that run the rainbows, that you know do practically everything you need a light to do in the wildest regions of your imagination. How do you keep up with this technology? Because you just mentioned having to learn, you know, having to work with these boards that, that can do anything. Can you keep up with the advances they're, they're making these days? Yeah. I mean, I think once you have a, once you have an understanding of how things work in a, in a broader sense, for example, if you understand how the different attributes of a moving light can fade in different ways, then once you, you know, each console is going to deal with that problem differently, but you start to understand the language of what they're doing. You know, and for me, the focus is never the technology. The technology is a tool. So I, I do need to learn it. That's a really important part of my job. But it's, it's not a primary focus. It's, you know, it's actually being in Italy, I keep thinking about language and how when, you, when you're learning a language, you're thinking so hard about what verb to use or you know, how, to, how to conjugate something. But when you, yeah. when you have mastery of it, you don't have to think about it. And that's the goal with technology, right? It's a tool. It's here to serve us. We're not here to serve it. So, yes, we need to learn it, but we learn it in order to not think about it, in order to be able to focus more closely on, uh, on the piece, on the making of the piece. Gotcha. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. You mentioned um, another quote that, that I pulled off your feed, which I absolutely love. You can tell in a production if the lighting designer has deeply understood the context of the production and is supporting it, or whether they have somehow not listened carefully enough. Now, from what you've been talking about so far and what I've read about you, you seem to have a rather organic, holistic approach to each individual production. Let's talk about this. I mean, somebody comes up with you comes up to you with a with with a possible gig, and you accept. How do you approach this, and how do you make this thing happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think it's about in a in a simple way. It's about listening. 
Uh, it's about listening to what the piece wants, what the context is, what the director's interested in, what the, what the collaborators are interested in, um, what the budget is, what the theater is, what the space is. Is it going to tour? Um, what technology do you have available? Uh, you know, what kind of lights do they already have? What kind of lights might they be able to rent? All of those things get thrown into the pot and become context for the show. And I think it's really important to acknowledge all of those things as a really essential role in the piece. I think it's it's easy or it's um, it's uh, attractive to uh, leave some of those things out. You say, oh, I'm going to ignore the fact that this show has no money, or I'm going to ignore that the costume designer is really interested in this, and then it it inevitably becomes a kind of disconnect once you're actually in the theater making the piece or, you know, hopefully not, it doesn't get to this point but once there's an audience and once the show's open. And I think you feel it. You feel it when the pieces don't cohere, when, when, when a, a lighting designer hasn't carefully enough considered all of the elements going in and, and figured out a way uh, to make them here you know and I think that's a major part of what a lighting designer does is you know we, we're when we when we're doing our main part of our work in in the tech rehearsal that's very late in the process so it's it's really up to us to to bring these elements together and to understand how they might all become one yeah it is late in the rehearsal by the time you I mean you get there to actually do the the specific work, I'm going to say, because um, you have to wait for the show to develop its own specificity of what it seems to be turning into or developing into, and therefore, you, the, I guess you take your cues off of that. So your time to work is noticeably shorter than everybody else's. Yeah, that's right. I mean, of course, the tricky part is you can't wait until the first day of tech to send in your light plot you know, or to fit, figure out how to meet the budget. So there's this kind of plasticity that's required, right? It's like when I read the script, I don't yet know all the design decisions of what the set's going to look like, what the director's interested in. But I start to formulate ideas and, you know, I, I, start to, I start to develop it. And at any point in that process, someone could t twist my arm and tell me to draw a light plot and I, and I would draw it based on what I think the show might be. But then there's always that moment of reimagining. There's always the moment of, oh, I thought it was this, but it's actually this. And hopefully, you know, and with enough mastery of the, of the craft, you can, you can develop a light plot that is flexible enough to meet those changing conditions. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense, absolutely. So you meet with the director, you meet with the production designer, or whatever it happens to be, uh, whoever it happens to be, what are the questions that you ask? Mm -hmm. I know we're getting really techy here, aren't we? Yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, it's not techy. I think it's, you know, it's different for every production. I think a big part of my approach tends to be to stay out of the way. So I, I do want to know what a director is interested in and what, what they're doing, what the, what the, what, what the piece is doing and what the piece does to them. Um, I, I, 
I don't like to force people to talk because I I feel like a lot of times when people don't have don't have something that they're wanting to express, then it's often not that helpful. So, hmm, do I have pre-prepared questions? I'm not sure. I mean, I might. Once we get down the line with a set designer, we might get into the nitty gritty of, oh, hey, like, how did you imagine this piece of scenery would be lit? Or is, are we in, in this world or that world? Um, but mostly I'm just interested in listening to what I think the, the director wants to say, what they want to bring to it. Okay. Yeah. Um... One of the things you just said is, is a particular favorite of mine, and it's one of the things I love most about theater. It's, it's one of the professions where you can legitimately ask somebody, what world are we in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I know, yeah. Normally it's reserved for, like, psychiatrists and mental wards, but no, it's all over theater. Um, right, right. I know. It's, it's, it's true, and it's amazing that we get to create uh, a landscape and we really get to get to dive into something that, that um, is completely constructed and artificial and, and we get to explore that. It's, it's playing pretend for a living, right? That's Isn't amazing. that great? <laughs> yeah. A, a, a friend of mine had a business card that says, I make my living by pretending to be other people. Right, right, totally. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. I know. I mean, yeah, we're all starving, but God knows I wouldn't do anything else. Um, yeah. So your current gig, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, it's, uh, it's Verdi's Il Trovatore, which is one of his masterworks. Um, For just to be uh, clear, this well, is an opera. Yeah, it's an opera. Um, uh, it, it's, it's being performed in French because the Verdi Festival is committed to doing Verdi's complete works. So part of that is that um, uh, the piece after it was premiered, after it premiered, it was adapted um, uh, to perform in Paris and for a Parisian um, sensibility. And part of that was <laughs> he ended up adding a 25-minute ballet into the middle of it, um, which, which in some ways feels really superfluous. Surprise. And it's very joyous and fun and um, uh, uh, but it's interesting that you know people who know El Trovatore will know Trouvere and notice a, a few differences like that. Um, uh, we're performing in the Teatro Farnese, which is um, uh, built in the 17th century. Um, if, if anyone has a chance to Google it, it's it, it, it's this incredible Baroque theater. Um, uh, with huge wooden interior, uh, it was it was originally built for naval battle reenactments. Uh, so they would flood the um, the the main part of the um, orchestra and and you know reenact it with ships and explosions. I assume. Okay, hang like on that. a second, because I'm going to ask the stupid question here. There's a market for naval battle reenactions. <laughs> there was in the 17th century. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There they're into spectacle, yeah, kind of like we're into now. Yeah, spectacle, number six in Plato's list. Okay, I'm sorry, keep going. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then it was destroyed. Uh, it wasn't used for a while. Um, there's some more history in there somewhere. It was largely destroyed in World War II, and it's been reconstructed. Um, and I, I also understand that the that it's one of the oldest – 
existing uh, prosceniums uh, in the world, um, that it's one of the oldest existing proscenium theaters. Um, so it's quite beautiful. And then um, the approach that we're taking is, um, is to subvert this kind of Baroque wooden beauty with a, um, a concrete box. So the, the whole piece takes place in a, in a, um, a large concrete, almost cube. Um, uh, and then over the course of the, of the piece, uh, the upstage wall moves down uh, in sequence until, um, until the final scene when it's oppressively close to the audience. Okay, so this not is definitely get... not community theater. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I guess not. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's in no way. That's unbelievable. I mean, are, are there, okay, so we can actually go online and find visuals of what you've been talking about. The the scenery, not yet. I mean, we're still in the load in process right now. Um, we begin tech rehearsal on Friday. Okay. Um, well, considering this uh, interview but, wouldn't hit the airwaves till October. Let's, oh, let's there you go. Yeah. yeah, let's say now. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure there are, there are some production photos floating around by then. Yeah, because I'm I'm dying to see this. So the back wall moves forward, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's quite a piece of um, machinery because the stage is also heavily raked and the back wall is very very heavy. So it, it required quite a bit of technology to figure out how to move it slowly and elegantly and to resist the force of it you know, wanting to roll downhill. And I would not and it has sitting to in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. That's intense. Okay. Um, that's, that's some heavy-duty stuff that you're working with there between, between the two productions and everything else that you're doing. I mean, you've got some fairly heavy major projects. And I'm wondering, what do you do for Saul? I mean, how do you keep... Saul in perspective, your life in perspective, and keep you in, I don't know, a calm place, a, a, a fully workable place? Do you need to do something right. like that? Does it all come natural to you, or do you, do you <laughs> tend to yourself somehow? Right, yeah. It, it's, um, it's a tricky lifestyle uh, to be... Uh, so the the Europe thing, the Robert Wilson thing, is fairly new to me. I started about a year ago with him, um, and these have been uh, really intense, long term projects. I mean, I'll be in Italy this time for five weeks. Um, but but even before then, since I graduated college, and certainly since grad school, it's a really um, tumultuous lifestyle. You know, it's it's lots of traveling, um, not much financial security. Even when you're working a lot, you're not making so much money that you can be, you know, super comfortable and pay for all the luxuries. You know, it's, it's, um, it can be very hand to mouth. Um, and lighting in particular is a very, um, uh, uh, the, the time frame to create the work is very, very small, right? Obviously, you can do some, you do as much preparation as you can before a tech rehearsal. But once you're, once you're in tech, that time is extremely valuable. You have to be able to work quickly. You have to be able to deal with the pressure well. Um, so, yeah, for me, balance um, is really important. Finding a way to, to figure out how to be calm, 
how to be present, how to not let all the distractions and anxieties derail me, and to really be focused on what um, what the task at hand is. The, the other thing is lighting designers are notoriously cranky during tech. You know, it's like, oh, don't, you know, don't I've talk to me right now. I'm building a kitchen. <laughs> And, you know, I think we I think we owe it to our collaborators to be approachable and to and to and to create an atmosphere that feels fun and uh, inventive and um, where new ideas can be explored. And so I think a big part of that is um, well, it's two things. Uh, it's two things. Both of them involve preparation. Okay, so the first one is more pragmatic: is preparing. Um, for the show. So for me, that is wrangling all the technology, getting all of my ducks in a row prior to the tech rehearsal so that I'm not playing catch up when I'm there. So that I, I know what everything's doing. I have everything working. I, I, I have my paperwork set up so that when we begin tech, I can be truly present with them. And the other thing is being in the right mental state. So for me, that has a lot to do with um, meditation, and I spend a lot of time uh, doing that and thinking about that and, and, and trying to figure out how to be more present in the world. And, you know, that might be, um, you know, sitting in a, in a more traditional way, or it might be, uh, you know, while I'm walking down the street or getting a cup of coffee or at the laundromat, finding a way to really be present in those moments and training myself to, um, in any situation, find the kind of uh, presence and the kind of calm so that when I'm in tech, I can access that, you know, and I can have that experience of being truly present with what's happening in the theater. Cool. Sounds like you've got it all uh, pretty much lined up and ready to go. So it's nice to have it. <laughs> well, I mean, no, in, in this business, everybody gets in. It's... <sighs> people can get overwhelmed by the responsibilities that they have since this is a business where we don't really quantify the things that we're expected to do. Most of what we produce is based on our own instincts and creativity. Um, and it comes down to an extremely, extremely subjective system of gauging and rating. So there's always that, you know, am I doing it the right way? Does this work? Was I off a little bit? Can I do it better? Um, which drives a lot of us completely mishugging up. Um, well, it's there, yeah. I mean, that's, I, you know, I'm not without that. I mean, I think that's the thing that leads me to, to put so much focus into figuring out how to wrangle all, the, all that anxiety. You know, it's really hard. I think it's hard for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, it's never, that, that problem never goes away. It's just about how, okay, oh, there's that feeling again. Okay, how am I going to deal with it this time? You know, and you start to, like, strategies yeah. um, but I don't think I have it all figured out I mean I think it's you know it, it, there's always there's always new anxieties your brain will always find something to, to worry about and stress out about and how do you you know, know it's, so it's an investigation <laughs> yeah yeah it's an investigation into uh, finding ways to, to strategize to, yeah. to deal with these challenges but then they're never going to go away no they won't and every production is going to bring you something new to uh, challenge your ingenuity and creativity um, one of the things I did when I was proposing a course for stage directing and they wanted to know how this would help my students 
later in life, I said, this is, this is the ultimate um, course for learning how to problem solve. Mm, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, I think that's, that's a huge part of what directing is, right? Is you have these, you have these components and you have to figure out how they all go together. Mm-hmm. And they all, they never all go together neatly in the first place. But, uh, right. Yeah, the rewards are if you're, <laughs> if you're in the theater, then an attachment to neatness will lead to suffering. I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. I it's, a, it's a dirty business. It's a messy business. Oh, my gosh, it is. It is. Okay. Last, you know, uh, yeah. last subject, and then, and then I'll let you get back to your life. Um, you've taught. I mean, I was, I was looking at your resume, and uh, the list of colleges that you've, you've been an educator at is impressive. It's long. It features, you know, Princeton, New School, Bard, Yale, you know, and Columbia and, and all those places. Um, how do you enjoy teaching and do you see more of it in your future? Yeah, I love it. Um, I, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge passion of mine. I'd like, I'd love to do it more. Um, I think that there's uh, teaching provides the opportunity to investigate ideas in a way that often in theater, because of, um, I guess it's because of uh, being short on time or having a million projects to juggle or whatever, you know, I I rarely get the opportunity to really investigate ideas and investigate craft in a way that, um, that I do with students. So it's lovely to slow down um, and uh, really look at these things carefully and and see it through new eyes. You know, trying to see it from their perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know what else to say about that. I I think. Um, well, how do you like working with the uh, with the students? So we're talking university level here. Yeah. It's it's just wonderful to see how they um, how they perceive things differently than I do, and and trying to get inside their head and understand, okay, what you know, what of this can I learn from, and and what of this do do I have something to teach, or can I can I subvert their path, or find a find a way to inspire them? Um, it's complicated, and there's so many different ways that people see the world and, um, you know, being part of that process and helping them to see it differently is really fun. Yeah. Well, you were a student not so long ago, too. That's right. Yeah. I still am in, in a lot of ways, you know. Well, that's good. That's good. I think we're always learning, especially in this, in this business. Um, well, you have to. I mean, I think that's the only way that you have any fun. If you, if you try to think that you know it all, then you're going to feel derailed every time you come up against something you don't know. Yeah. And particularly working in Europe, it's been, you know, I, I feel like a child so often, you know, it's like I, um, uh, I, there's, there are so many things here, you know, like how to, how to use the bathroom in this restaurant or like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, the way that the crosswalks work or, you know, you can go to a place and be, become, you become like an infant again. You're like, ah, everyone knows how to do this thing around me and I don't know how to do this. And, you know, and mm-hmm. I think it's really important to feel that humility 
once in a while to feel to feel a little bit small and to see how big the world is. You know, I think it's important. And it, again, like it helps you, it helps you to figure out how to adapt to all kinds of situations, which I think is really healthy for the brain. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, um, I've been spending a lot of time in Costa Rica, so I know exactly what you're talking about between the language yeah. and the verb declensions and trying to figure out how the bathroom works, especially how the bathroom works. Um, yeah, I'm, I feel like an eternal student. Right, right. Yeah, and if you can embrace that feeling, you know, it leads to, I think, a lot more happiness than, than if you resist it. It does. I, I, I will second you on that. Solomon Weisbart, it's been wonderful talking to you and good to hear your voice again after so many years. Um, how can we find out more about you? Where are you online? Yeah, I think probably the best thing is my uh, website, solweisbart.com. Um, and then I have uh, Instagram and Facebook accounts. It's pretty easy to Google me. There aren't many Solomon Weisbarts out there. So pretty, pretty findable. Sounds good. All right, Sol, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, George. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world, Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. Yeah.